Many people live without a social safety net, and nothing shakes their already unstable situation more than a crisis. The spread of coronavirus has exposed vulnerable segments of society, promoting communities to rally around them and support. One such example of this is Mutual Aid Kenya. When the first case of COVID was discovered in Kenya, Vivin Muganda, a social activist, began engaging in digital advocacy, making sure that her fellow Kenyans are well informed about the potential risk and protective measure from the virus. Vivin soon realized that several members of the population were ill-prepared and ill-supported, and despite of her limited resources, she was adamant to help. And together with her friend Sahil, she knew they had to do more. The two began working together, leading to the creation of Mutual Aid Kenya. Vivin's work has helped thousands of people during this crisis, inspired hundreds of people to work together as a community, and made the impossible possible. And you are going to hear all about this project and the backstory and the meaningful work she has done on today's episode. I am Nitin Jain, and this is Ordinary Enough, a weekly podcast where we have conversation with change makers, people who are using their life to make a positive impact. We show up here at Ordinary Enough to ask big questions, dive into new ones, and learn from each other's stories. So, without any further ado, let's jump into my conversation with Vaven. Given that we are in the middle of the pandemic, let's start there. How are things in Kenya? Um, so in Kenya currently, uh, we are seeing a decline in the number of uh, recorded cases of, uh, of COVID-19. And uh, this is just based on the statistics that is shared on national television and um, the information that is coming from state officials on the number of people, I think um, currently we are seeing cases below 100 um, per day, new cases. And uh, the, the, the perception is that things are getting better. Um, that is in terms of, you know, the number of people who are contracting the virus, but also we are seeing things are opening up. So more businesses are opening, more people are getting back to uh, work. But of course, the economy is greatly affected uh, by the months where uh, things are not really moving. And so a lot of people who do not have a social safety net are still um, struggling to make ends meet, despite the fact that things um, are really getting better in terms, in terms of flattening the curve and reducing the spread of the virus. That seems like a good news, at least in terms of number of cases. Economy-wise, I know it still remains a challenge, especially for the people with daily wages. You use the word perception. Is it because you think agencies are hiding the actual figures? So, uh, you know, like uh, for us, we are seeing the number of cases that is being shared with us is uh, not as high as, as we thought because, you know, the initial prediction was that we would be at an all-time high by this time. But we are seeing the opposite. And uh, at this point, we are not certain that uh, if, if this is actually accurate 
or this is based off the different trust issues and, and fund mismanagement that has been going on in Kenya as recently a lot of COVID-19 funds were allegedly looted. There was like uh, major graft allegations, uh, corruption scandals. And since the corruption scandals were exposed, immediately we started seeing a reported decline in the cases. So honestly, as as uh, as social workers and, and even generally the the citizens don't know what to believe anymore. So everyone is just taking individual responsibility, wearing a mask, social distancing, but more gatherings are happening, um, churches, bars, mosques, um, eateries are open, but of course we have the curfew between 9 p.m. to um, 5, um, I think it's 4 or 5 a.m. It's a really tricky situation and we can only hope that the information that we are receiving is the current situation because we're not having mass testing and we're not we're not seeing testing like in, in public testing um, in huge numbers so we can only trust that the information that we get is accurate so logically the numbers shared do not make sense but then there is this point of no mass testing being done which could justify the low numbers do you think there's a relation between the numbers shared by the government and the corruption of funds? Yeah, I think uh, I think that uh, giving the perception that the cases are going lower implies that um, the funds are being used to flatten the curve, to treat more people. Uh, but you know, it's really not possible to go from over 900 cases a day to like less than 200 cases in less than a week. It, it just doesn't, um, add up because these are just what they call recorded cases. Also, uh, we cannot be certain because I think there was a day we had um, about 83 cases in the whole country. It is It doesn't make sense to have 83 cases. Um, it also depends on how many people are being tested. So the funds that uh, we also had the COVID-19 test kits that were stolen they were donated by Jack Ma and then they were stolen at the airport. So, so there's, there's no mass testing. And um, we've seen that currently actually hospitals, certain hospitals in certain towns are on strike, medical staff are on strike. So, you know, it, it just doesn't make sense to have medical professionals at home on strike. And yet the number of cases are going down. We cannot see the interventions that are leading to this decline other than the individual responsibilities that people are taking. So I think that it's more like a cover up to prevent like public outrage over uh, the COVID-19 funds as it stands. It's just allegation based on exposés done by journalists officials in charge have not come out openly to really give audit reports of how the funds are spent and and uh, how much has been spent uh, so far. Okay, good to know. Coming back to you, you're involved in social justice, policy formulation, youth development, data advocacy, and more. Can you share some of the initiatives that are close to your heart? Yeah, I'm a frontline activist. I'm really passionate about trying to find solutions to um, the challenges that 
many Kenyans face, which is human rights violations and injustices. I have taken part in different projects and initiatives. Some are initiatives that I have founded myself, while others have been projects and initiatives where I was a part of collaborating or uh, a part of a bigger organizational network. I think two and a half years ago, I started uh, Beyond the Lines, and this is uh, an online initiative that seeks to promote active citizenship, um, encourage peace building by young people. And really the idea initially was to share different narratives than what I was seeing online. What I was seeing online was narratives of violence, of hopelessness, of injustices. And uh, based on research, a lot of these uh, narratives end up radicalizing and end up pushing young people, especially into violent extremist groups. And so I wanted to counter whatever it is that was being shared online either uh, from state or from extremist groups. So I, I started this as a way to educate and to also learn myself about human rights, peace building and active citizenship. And how I do this is by writing stories or articles or maybe interlocuting policy documents. So if there are any policies or laws, you know how the policies and laws are written in, in language that many people do not understand. It's in uh, the jargon that you know only technical people can understand or the specialists and people in the social science uh, sector. So I wanted to write and make human rights um, appealing for many young people. I wanted consciousness to be cool for many people, like not look at it as, you know, this is such hard work or you have to be different or outstanding. You just really need to care about people, about your environment, uh, about everything. You're, so just to be conscious. This was also a space where I could give opinions based on the work that I was doing in the community. So um, working on access to justice programs, uh, human rights education, women empowerment. Every time I had a thought about a challenge or a situation that I wanted to address, that the beyond the lines would be my first go-to. Over the years, it's been able to reach hundreds of thousands of people and um, inspired other people to start their own peace building initiatives. That makes so much sense. Honestly, I have never read a single policy in my life, and that's because they are so complicated and lengthy. But if someone could break it down in simple and human readable form, like you did, it would make it much easier to understand. And that was a very good idea. Then what happened? As I was doing that, I realized a gap because I was writing it in English. So even though I wanted to write and communicate to not really experts. So I still realized that there are so many young people in informal uh, spaces in slums that couldn't access the internet. They would still have challenges in understanding the English. So because of this, I started another initiative that's, uh, that's in Swahili, it's called Kaulizetu Mtaani, which is a Swahili phrase for our opinions in the hood. But through this, I was just going to chill spots, certain neighborhoods, different neighborhoods, and speaking to young people who 
just um, who would spend their time with their friends in chill spots. These chill spots have existed over time, culturally, where I live at the coast. Um, families and friends like to sit in certain corners and talk. And so this culture has, has been ongoing. But these spaces in time have evolved and have become dens of crime, dens of violence. Uh, we've seen that a lot of extremist groups have been infiltrating these dens, especially those that have young people only radicalizing them, recruiting them into violence. And so just the way I wanted to counter uh, extremist narrative online, I wanted to do the same offline by going into these spaces and talking to young people also as a way of including including them in conversations on development and social justice. The whole idea behind going into their spaces was to have these discussions the way that they would have loved it to be and not uh, dictating how I wanted the conversation to go. So for me, I, I was very certain that I wanted to talk about social justice. I wanted to talk about human rights and governance. But when I went there, the conversation was very random and casual. Most importantly, this was a space where I encouraged young people to take part in um, leadership and decision-making processes at the communities because the perception is that for you to be a leader, you have to be in a high position of influence and all that. But I believe that the best approach is that uh, starting with yourself as an individual, how you lead your life and inspiring others to lead their lives. And that would have a ripple effect to how the country's leadership um, looks like. Because you were writing on the internet, you discovered that there was this major section of the population who does not speak English. So you decided yes. to go and speak to them in person and discuss with them various topics, right? Yes. So what was the outcome of these discussions? So because of my activism, I've been fortunate to take part in uh, policy formulation processes and discussions where major decisions on, on development and governance were, were made. But it is very rare to find people from the local communities involved in this process. So even though people will say this is a community project, the community is not involved in designing it. Uh, they've not been asked what their needs are, how these needs can be addressed. And so it's many development experts sitting in boardrooms and thinking that, oh, okay, this is what people in slums need. And uh, so that really, changed the way I looked at policy formulation. And it made me realize that a lot of policies are not practical. A lot of laws are not practical for the ordinary person who has very little privilege in terms of the socioeconomic uh, ways of, of uh, living. I wanted to not only represent them and represent the young people that I have grown up with and my peers, I wanted their voices to be included. And so because of this, uh, I really had the opportunity to brief the UN Security Council last year, when for the first time they wanted to hear from young people about the Youth Peace and Security Resolution 2250. And for me, it, 
it was a good opportunity because I, I not only spoke about my initiative, but I was able to speak on behalf and talk about the issues that uh, young people uh, were telling me in the communities. Oh, that's nice. Representing your country at the UN and sharing the voice of youth sounds amazing. Very good. Thank you so much. Recently, you worked on another great initiative called Mutual Aid Kenya. Can you talk about your experience around that? What was this initiative about? Mutual Aid Kenya, which was an initiative that was that um, I was co-leading with my friend Suhail Omar. This started when the first case of COVID-19 was confirmed in Kenya. And when that happened, you know, before we were just reading about it in the news and there were all these rumors that, you know, black people can't get COVID-19, Africans, you know, and then there were other rumors where, you know, if this COVID-19 gets to Africa, then their population would be, would go down by half. Like there were, there were so many conspiracies and this had just, there was, there was, it was very difficult to have accurate information about the virus because even WHO was still figuring out um, the modalities of it. So when the first case was confirmed here, I wrote an article on Beyond the Lines, the initiative I just talked about, and I was just talking about uh, my opinions on how I feel that this country, uh, this country's leadership can can do to ensure that the virus doesn't spread fast because our health systems are not strong enough. We don't have enough medical personnel, enough hospitals. Um, all these challenges that we face um, doesn't mean that we were just supposed to be victims of the virus. And as I shared the article, I got so much feedback from people who read it, mostly my friends telling me, if you wait for the government to do this, it's not going to happen you just uh, find a way of doing it because what you have said is true and it's it's necessary. And when I went on Twitter, I saw my friend Suhail um, was talking about how to support vulnerable communities. And that's when I reached out to him and we started uh, bringing our thoughts together. He lives in Nairobi and I live in Mombasa, which were the major hotspots for the virus. Uh, that's how we started Mutual Aid Kenya. So it was about um, communities caring for one another, providing um, your skills, your time, your resources, sharing extra packets of food if you have it, and caring for those who don't, running errands for people who are high risk so that they don't have to go out and get exposed. And we targeted slums and informal settlements because these were the first people that lost their jobs. They live in crowded areas. They have no health insurance. Like um, they were most likely at risk of virus, whether through infection or just being affected by the economic situation. Okay, so with the help of Beyond the Lines, which was already known to the people and even before COVID, you were able to reach out and share advice and tips on how to prevent infection from the virus, right? Yes. But then at one point, you decided to do more and join forces with Sohail. Yes. Which is amazing. And just to go a little deeper, how did you start? Don't you need funds to start such initiative? And was this initiative only limited to food packet distribution? We started with the little money that me and Sohail had, and we reached out to people online. 
And in, in a span of uh, three or four months, I think collectively we had raised about 1.5 million Kenyan shillings. That's about 15,000 USD. And we supported over 2,000 families with food relief pack. We also realized that a lot of children in these slums cannot access online learning. So we printed out some education materials so that they can continue learning from home. And then we had a rising case of violence, especially against children, child abuse, now that they were in families that some of them were not being cared for. So we also did awareness and uh, shared information about how to report child abuse and we included this in the education materials for them. We also included education on COVID-19 and how to prevent themselves. We also participated in protests against police brutality that was ongoing, especially because the police were using a lot of force and violence to enforce COVID-19 regulations, like beating up someone because they're not wearing a mask, you mentioned you were able to collect almost 15,000 US dollars, which is a significant amount. Was it all through word of mouth? And was it challenging to get people to donate? What was your experience around that? And what about the trust factor? So not really word of mouth, mostly it was um, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, and LinkedIn. That's where we would we talked about that. I think the first time we started, I made a Facebook post and said, uh, I would really love to support certain families that are in need. And this is how we are going to do it. And even if you don't have money to donate, you can be part of the movement and volunteer to help us do this. And we, we put our phone numbers there where people could send money or contact us. So we would regularly share posts like to appeal for donations. So it was entirely online um, and the crowdfunding campaign. Uh, I, I had done a lot of legal aid programs uh, in communities, uh, women empowerment projects. So it was very easy for them to trust me. And also it was very easy even for people to donate to Mutual Aid Kenya because um, it all started as a movement. We were not for formally registered, so it was really high risk for anyone looking to donate to our cause because of accountability issues, especially in Kenya. But we saw the overwhelming support uh, brought about by the trust that was put on me and my uh, partner, Suhail. To, to, just to also build this trust, what we did was share publicly how much we were receiving regularly so every two three weeks we would share how much we've received how we spent it and we made sure that the whole process was transparent and open and that really went a long way in building trust um, not only in the community but also with the people who are supporting the movement the idea of sharing the numbers and being transparent was incredible I have to ask you this question. What was that one thing that really surprised you about this whole movement that you did not expect it at all? For me, I'd say in Mombasa, what really uh, stood out for me is that one instance where we went to a community and there was an elder lady whose house was falling apart. 
and she's definitely high risk. It was rainy season, so we couldn't imagine um, the risk of contracting the virus, and we knew we had to get her to resettle her. So we, what we did was talk to the community to help build uh, a temporary shelter. And on the day where we went to, I went to, you know, get the supplies and go there, maybe try and find like a carpenter or someone to help with the building. We found uh, over 30 people. We found women making food for the people who are building. We found uh, men who came out to build the house. We found young people cutting um, and preparing the materials for the building. And it just showed that, you know, community care looks different. It doesn't have to be in finances, but just giving your time and seeing how they came together for nothing other than to support one of their own. That really changed the way I even looked at the initiative and it inspired many others to keep doing their work uh, beyond mutual aid. What was the reason behind closing Mutual Aid Kenya? So Mutual Aid Kenya is more of disaster relief and not really a development um, project or organization. So in the event that there is a disaster, unfortunate event of a disaster or a crisis, then Mutual Aid Kenya is there because it's a movement. Whether me or Suhail exist, we expect that other people would fill in the gap and come in to support their community if there is another crisis. That makes sense. Okay. Before we wrap up, I would love to know what inspired you to walk on this path. I can't really point out to a specific event, but I think that uh, generally growing up, I really had experience in injustice. I experienced injustices myself, some directly and some indirectly. It was really tough growing up in the financial situation that we were in. I saw how difficult it was to get through as a family because our ethnic group is not originally from Mombasa. And so we lived in constant fear of always being pushed away or, or chased from our home or from our town because of the ethnic clashes. And fortunately, we actually survived that. And then um, all through, when I went to high school, I think that's when I started actively engaging in community work. We were always encouraged to give back to the society because we didn't know who was paying for our education, but somehow we knew we didn't have to worry about that. So the idea about giving back, the idea of empathy and community service was, um, was really nurtured um, in high school when I was 13. But it wasn't until after graduation that I started seriously looking into this as something that I wanted to actively pursue. So I went to Rwanda and uh, volunteered there for like um, three months, three, four months. And when I was there, I, the fulfillment that I got um, from volunteering in the community, I just couldn't get over that. I knew that I could not change everyone's situation, but I just wanted to change one thing. And that is what kept me going. And over time, seeing the impact that the work I have done has has, has, has had, 
has really been the the driving force because the days are hard um it's dangerous to be an activist you you're targeted and you you, you also don't live the best life you know even meeting your own uh, personal needs but every day looking at the difference that the work is making keeps me going and I can't really point out to one injustices but one injustice or one situation but for me it's been every phase of my life has had a moment where I felt like I really need to change something I know I can do this for my community The whole time we were having this conversation I was thinking about inequalities. I was thinking about how selfless Waven is and how effortlessly she's able to think in terms of us, the community, rather than me, the individual. I really like her idea of engaging young people to participate in leadership and decision making for their communities. And how we as an individual have power to inspire others and could change the way country's leadership looks like. I highly recommend checking out Waven's work on internet in general. You can follow her on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram. You can also check out her website beyondthelines.org where she explains so much more about what she does. If you're new to Ordinary Enough, we would love for you to stick around. Make sure you hit subscribe to keep on getting more inspiring conversation with incredible people delivered straight to your phone every week. This podcast is created by me. Nitin Jain as a part of Ordinary Enough a community that believes in celebrating inspiring and creative individuals who are using their talent to make a positive impact you can get lots of more hopeful stories on social media by following us everywhere at ordinaryenough.com and on that note that was a wrap for this week's episode go out and be the change you wish to see in the world and we will be back next week with another inspiring story from an incredible person